Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 36. In the course of the more than seven months that I've been doing this podcast, there have been a few concepts that have come up from time to time, uh, such as one of the ones that comes up for this episode, and that is the concept of being a specialist versus a generalist. And a specialist, for example, would be like what this podcast is. Uh, although we do go outside the box occasionally, in fact, the uh, episode 37 will go uh, outside of our, our norm. But for the most part, I would say that, you know, 90% or more of our episodes involve people who play musical instruments in the pit. And that's pretty niche. Unlike other podcasts, I don't usually talk to people about acting or choreography or other aspects of the theater. I guess it's something that I'm not close-minded to, and, you know, we might expand to that down the line after we've, we've been doing this for a while. But there weren't other podcasts out there, as far as I could tell, that were talking to pit musicians, so I decided this podcast is going to be a specialist rather than a generalist. And how this shows up in pit musicians is that a specialist will tell you something like, I play flute, and that's it. If your book calls for flute, I will play it. And it's because I spend all of my professional preparation time practicing the flute, I'm very good at playing the flute. Whereas a uh, generalist is like, I play all of the woodwinds. I play all the flutes, the clarinets, and uh, all of the double reeds, and I can cover uh, all of those instruments you need in a show. And the reality is they, they may play them all equally well, um, but maybe not at the highest level of anyone who plays those, those instruments individually. Well, today's guest, Louis B. Krakow, has to be considered a theater generalist. As I do with a lot of the guests that I haven't worked with in person before, um, I did ask if he would send me just a, a bio, you know, just a little resume to show me what uh, what are some of the things he's been doing so I can kind of know how to guide the conversation. Well, he, he sent me a resume of his uh, theater experience as a musician. He is a percussionist, and it's exactly what I was looking for. Um, it showed all of the tours that he's done. He's He's been touring for 25 years, including 10 different years on, on White Christmas, um, with High School Musical, with Bombay Dreams, The King and I, Miss Saigon, uh, just a ton of shows. A lot of these are the bona fide National Broadway tour. Uh, he also toured in Japan uh, on a production of Rent, so we're going to be talking about that. But that was one of five resumes he sent me. He also sent me a resume highlighting his achievements as an actor and a singer, one that highlighted his achievements as a choreographer and a director, and he is also a registered stage manager. In one of the questions that I cut for time, I said, well, I don't see anything about like lighting and sound design. That's about the only thing I could think of that he hasn't done. And he said he has done that, but he's been done it more for like community theaters, more of a amateur level. It wasn't something that he felt like he should make a resume for. Uh, but just to make a point, he has done everything in theater. Something else that comes up that has come up before is just the importance of Summerstock Theater. Uh, so many guests who have made it big as a pit musician got their start in Summerstock. And uh, Louis B. Crocco is no exception. But back to Louis's varied theater experience, why so much experience? Why does he have to have so many hats in the theater? Well, as he tells me multiple times, his goal was to just keep working. Here's my conversation with Louis B. Krakow. Thanks for reaching out and agreeing to be on this podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. So where do you call home? And uh, what, what, what would you say is ordinarily, what would your job be? 
<laughs> uh, New York City is my home. Okay. Uh, and uh, it has been now. I, my first, right out of college, I started touring, and I was on the road for 25 years straight, uh, living out of hotel rooms, and that was kind of crazy. And um, But it was fun, and it was my job, and that's how I just looked at it. I just, one tour led into another, and it just fell into place. So that's what I did. And uh, so it was probably about eight or nine years ago, I actually started like actually staying in a place. Right. And I, I'm trying to think of how I should put it. My whole life, I've just been, the goal was to just keep working. Right. And uh, it's, it's funny. I've, we'll get to this, I'm sure, but I've gotten into podcasting lately. And, and one of the things I do is listen to a lot of podcasts. Right. To try to learn how to make them better. Right. And that's one thing that I'll get back to that later. But uh, if you told me that 20 years ago that I would be listening to more people talk and argue and just <laughs> give their opinions about stuff instead of listening to Broadway cast albums, I would have said you're absolutely out of your mind. But that's the case. Uh, but uh, one of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to recently is called Smartless. And mm -hmm. they had Martin Short on as a guest right. this last and I thought this was perfect. And I was like, oh, I'm going on this podcast. Well, obviously, he's a big entertainer. And one of his quotes, and I don't know if it's his quote directly, so I shouldn't quote it, I guess. But longevity is truly the gold medal in this business. Right. And <laughs> that's something I've basically taken to heart since I started. And I've just always been a learner. I've always wanted to learn about other people's sides of the business. And right. that's how it basically all got started. So I started out as a drummer, conductor in the business, and that's what I mainly do on tours. Right. However, going way back, I started out as an actor mm -hmm. on stage, and I was a voice percussion major in college and always just wanted to act. Right after I graduated college, I was going to New York auditioning and was finding out very quickly mm -hmm. that... I was considered a chorus boy because that's what I looked like, a chorus boy. Right. I'm not a dancer. I call, I'm a mover at best. Right. And in today, when I say today's world, now I'm going back 25 years. Right. It's not like they used to where they could have a dancing ensemble, a singing ensemble, you know, separated. It's, you had to be a triple threat. So, and I knew I wasn't. So I knew right away and the drumming had been working for me. So that's why I immediately thought, you know what? Let me do this for now. Maybe someday I'll come back to this. And I've always just had an interest of everything in the business, directing and all that kind of stuff. I learned, I watched, I did summer stock for nine, 10 years straight while I was in college and all that stuff. So I'm watching all these things. I'm watching the stage. Basically, my goal was just to keep working. And that's what I try to do. Right. And been very fortunate enough to do it professionally now for 25, 26 years. It's been crazy. It's been a run and I, and it's been so much fun. Uh, but to answer your exact question nowadays, I consider myself a, a drummer, musician, and a stage manager. Nice. So it's not everybody that sends me not one, but five resumes. <laughs> you've oh. got, you've got so many different hats. I was looking at all these things that you've done in theater and uh, I, I was kind of a little anxious. I was going to meet you and find out you were like 24 years old or 25. <laughs> Every now and then you see these resumes and you're like, well, this is just a kid, you know? Right. And it's like, how do how do you have all this experience already? So uh, it looks like you're closer to my age, you know? So that makes me feel more e at ease, but still, uh, I mean, at any age, you have quite a degree of accomplishment on just about every way you can in theater. As as uh, I mean, I think I saw on your. Ha, have you directed? I've done a few of these in the past, and I just the one thing I always say is I'm so lucky. Yeah, I've been so lucky in my paths, and I a lot of it's right place, right time. And the the important thing for me personally is that I know that. Right. Now that's not to say I didn't work my butt off. Right. In high school and college, and after that. Mm -hmm. And trust me, I started out doing every low-budget, non-union national tour you could imagine when I first started before I joined the union and everything. And so I definitely paid some dues. There's no doubt about that. Right. Uh, one of your past guests, uh, I and I toured together. Brian. What show? Titanic. Ah. Titanic. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was another one of those. Just The, the schedules on those are just crazy. But you right. know what? It, it builds character, as I, I like to say. Right. 
and uh, stuff like that. So what were you asking about directing? Is that what you said? Well, that... well, I just said that was the one thing I, I didn't see at a, at a glance. Have you also done that? Because you've staged managed, you've acted, you're a choreographer. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. now I said, I wasn't lying. I'm, I'm, this is kind of funny because uh, my fiance's a rocket. So ah. the joke is that I call it, I coined this phrase. I don't know of anyone else that uses it, but I call it movography. Nice. Uh, because that's, <laughs> A mover, not a dancer. And so I, a lot of the choreography stuff I've done is with children's theater. Mm -hmm. And the artistic directors love me because, well, I have a percussion side. The, 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 the one first time I directed for this theater in Ohio, in Centerville, Ohio, mm -hmm. this guy hires me and he basically hired me as the music director for Jekyll and Hyde. And they were also doing, that's the adult theater. And then they also had a children's theater. And he's like, the money wasn't great for the music directing position. He's like, but I got this. He's like, I'm going to pat it. I see you've done some directing. He's like, I've got this straight play. It's Jack and the Magic Beans. He's like, why don't you do that for me? And he goes, that pays an extra $1,400. I was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I get in the middle of it. And I, of course, I'm like, well, I have to have a tap dancing cow. And he's like, <laughs> so they make the noise when they come across the stage, you know, and stuff like that. And he's like, okay, I can do that. And he did say I get to pick like my own like interchange music, you know, like the beginning and the scene change music. Right. It's a yeah, anyway, well, to make a long story short, I turn the scene where Jack brings the cow to market into this like ridiculous thing where I had all the kids, um, the things they were selling at market, they were all like homemade percussion instruments. So I did one day where I'm doing this mm -hmm. as the director, you know, where they we made homemade shakers and you know the the jingle sticks and things like that and with ribbons on them. And oh, anyway, so long story short, I turned the market scene into like this huge production number nice. where I was tap dancing against the percussion, and uh, it was just it was just so much fun. And this guy is like, "What have you freaking done?" <laughs> direct a simple straight play because he, he of course he was complimenting me. he's like now the parents are going to expect this in every one of my shows hmm. uh so anyway so yeah i've done a lot of directing i love working with kids i've done four national tours of annie i've always just had lots of fun working with kids and i we some reason we relate well for right. some reason and get a lot out of them and uh it's yeah so i've done a lot of directing the stage management came later in life right uh, it's but now it's been a key for me because I've been an equity stage manager now for seven years. Mm -hmm. It's important. It's two pensions, so right. that'll be nice. And um, it's been my full time employment now in New York City for seven months. I'm the production stage manager for the off Broadway play Perfect Crime, which is the longest running ever off Broadway play. Mm -hmm. uh, the musical was fantastic. This was the straight play Perfect Crime, and we're hoping it's going to reopen. Uh, right. That's the plan when all this hopefully calms down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was later in life. That was, uh, again, right place, right time. Right. And again, but I, I did pay my dues. I didn't just fall into it, but, um, right. Well, you know, there's an expression that's come up, uh, in at least a couple of episodes so far, and that's generalist versus specialist. That first came up in episode three with Jim Brandt. You have two ways of approaching the pit. Like, for example, like for, you know, uh, someone can decide I am just going to play the clarinet and that's right. it. And, and it possibly get really good at that <laughs> or they can learn all the woodwinds and odds are that they probably won't learn them all at as high of a level as they would have learned one, but they have all that. So I have to say you are a theater generalist. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you are not pigeonholed into the pit. That's true overall, but professionally, like what I call professionally, national tours. Right. Uh, I've only been a, a drummer conductor. Right. I've never stage managed a national tour. I've never directed. I've never acted. Right. So that's my main, but I have done professional theater in those aspects. Right. But right. again, the key was just to keep working. And then when I was in between tours, mm -hmm. you know, some of my colleagues, they, they like snuffed at me about it. And they're like, how could you work in that high school or whatever? And I was like, their money's just as green as the other money. What's the, you know, I'm filling my time. I'm not getting bored uh, because, you know, you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Like I was on the Miss Saigon tour for three and a half years and doing the same thing over and over and over. Sometimes it gets daunting. And I'm not saying I minded that, but right. when I have the downtime, 
I, I liked to, yes, spread my wings a little bit and not just drum another show or just sit in a practice studio all day and I could do other things and it was fun. Uh, the funny thing about stage management, honestly, is that mm. I saw so many bad ones mm-hmm. that I was like, <laughs> it's like I learned so not what to do. And I've had some really good ones too along the way. But uh, even on these national tours, I've seen some really, in my opinion, bad ones. And it's like, okay, now I've learned what not to do. Right. And that can be just as important as learning what to do, in my opinion. Right. Well, yeah. you know, just kind of back to, you know, generalists and specialists. Uh, the, the one thing I'm starting to find is that those who become generalists, whether it's a generalist in the pit or a generalist within the broader field of theater, if the goal is to keep working, that's your best shot because you might not be, you know, you might not be someone's first call on the percussion list, but, but, but you've got your stage manager experience and your, your moveology and your directing and your acting. And you might be, you might be a fit somewhere, you know, on, if you've got all those hats. Yeah. And I got to be honest for me, when it started out, I wanted to be the actor. I, I played drums my whole life. And it was actually funny. The associate music director at the Summerstock Theater that I was acting on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a senior in high school and I was actually making $85 a week thinking I made it. And as an actor, you know, I'm being paid, you know. Right. And so my parents came to see a show. And that was the year I actually was honored i made the john phillips Sousa national honors band and that's where they take like eight percussionists from across the country mm-hmm. and um so my parents were of course a little braggy about it and so this guy came to me he goes oh i didn't know you play drums i was like yeah he goes do you read music and i'm of course i'm like of course i read music and he was right. like well you know and i was like yeah he goes have you ever thought about playing drums for broadway shows mm-hmm. and i went my first comment was is my acting that bad <laughs> Like, he's like, oh, no, 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 not at all. He goes, but it might be another outlet. So that night or the next show, I think it was whenever I had some downtime, I kind of concentrated on what the drummer was doing. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. Well, the next summer I was applying for to hopefully come back as an actor, but then realized that the drummer was making $350 a week and I'm making 85. I was like, yeah, I can do that (laughs) at that point, because it was like my turned into my summer job. And uh, I was like, yeah. So that's when I started, I became the drummer that season and getting all those shows under my belt. You do seven or eight shows a summer. Mm -hmm. And also, though, in my eyes, I was watching all these actors, these professional actors from New York City coming up to do the Summerstock Theater and these directors. And I was just watching and I'm learning and I'm thinking, okay, maybe someday I will be an actor and I'm learning all these roles, you know, even though I'm sitting in the pit playing the music, having a blast but I was learning more about other facets of the theater and uh, it just never happened. I just, the drumming worked and it fell into my lap and I just kept going and I got lucky. Like I said, once I was on tour, another tour called and then another tour called and I just kept going. Right. And uh, yeah, it was lucky, but. So, so I gathered you that uh, a lot of your percussion experience came from, from marching band, from band in general. Yeah. Yeah. I started, you know, the typical fifth grade. Now that's kind of an interesting, funny story. I didn't want to play drums. I wanted to play uh, saxophone. Hmm. And now I'm going way, I'm going to show my age besides me having an AOL.com email address. <laughs> when my sisters, I have four sisters, the three older ones, when they got married, it was back in the days when you hired live musicians for your band, not right. a DJ. And for some reason, all three of their weddings, I was so infatuated with the saxophone player. I wanted mm-hmm. to play saxophone. Well, I have another younger, older, she's two years older than me. So she, of course, got to do everything right before I did. Well, she hits fifth grade, I'm in third grade, and she decides that she's going to play saxophone. I was so angry. I was like, are you kidding me? And it even got to the point where she comes home with it and like, you know, like dangling it in front of me. And of course, the note that accompanied specifically said, do not let your younger brothers or sisters touch your instruments. So my mom was like, you can't, because I was like, let me, you got to let me try this. You got to let me play. <laughs> and she's like, nope, nope, nope. So fast forward to fifth grade, when we're choosing, I had a plan. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone and their brother apparently wants to play drums. Mm -hmm. Now that's heard. Okay. So I didn't want to be a copycat. Okay. So I chose drums. However, my backup choice was alto saxophone. And the plan was that there were going to be so many kids that wanted to drum (laughs) that I was going to fault in default into being a saxophone player. And so the music teacher comes in the room. He's like, so he's given the spiel. And I was like, so did everyone get their first choice? 
And he goes, yeah, he goes, actually, it was pretty well spread out. So everyone got their first choice. So no problem. And I was like, oh, and he was like, oh, want to play drums? And I was like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. So, I mean, I have my sister to thank for this because who knows? Because I think about woodwind players and what they've gone through and what they have to go through. I don't know if I would have had that. Right. You know, a successful pit musician, I know you've covered this before, you know, having to be able to be a doubler and a tripler and all these other instruments I don't know that I would have, uh, it, it'd be an interesting, you know, if I could rewind and do it all over, it'd be interesting. I don't know that I, if I would have had the gumption to learn all those instruments. Right. Now, now do you, do you have like the full percussion experience, like with mallet instruments and so forth? Yeah, no, another one. And this is, it's, they hate me for saying this when I start a lot of friends now the professional they're uh, friends from high school they have kids now that are in there like hey can you give them some advice and i, I just I, i'm like learn your mallets yeah. that's all i can tell you if when i was in high school you just got the pad and sticks that's what we got mm-hmm. now i know they've upped it since then i think you could get a snare drum kit with like a little set of uh, like a glockenspiel or even or just something right so you learn what notes are even we didn't do that back then. It wasn't until I was a sophomore in high school that mm-hmm. I even knew what a mallet instrument was. I mean, obviously you play them in the general music, the log drums and things like that. But I mean, really knowing what a xylophone was or a marimba and all that stuff. Right. Man, I was so far. I'm still far behind. Right. Uh, you know, I, I I have a great Miss Saigon story about that, but it's... <laughs> so far behind and even to this day i you know I, i'm not where i really should be as a mallet percussionist and right. i've lost opportunities because of that i really have well now, now if you got a great miss saigon story this is a place you can share it <laughs> i mean people are going to hate me because i mean okay. okay so when you send these resumes in don't think they go nowhere you, right. you know because you wonder when you send a resume in or something like do they even get it you know, it's electronic. They're like, did they, did they, even... that always drove me crazy when people can't even just hit a reply and say, thanks. I don't need right. a long dissertation, nothing. Okay. All right. So I've already done Miss Saigon once. Now I was the associate music director on that tour. I subbed in on the drum book mm-hmm. probably at least 15, 20 times in the three and a half years we did it. That was such a great setup, that tour. However, this was a newer tour years later. Uh, Byark Lee was directing mm-hmm. and Kevin Stites, who I'd never worked with before was music directing. And so they had an ad mm-hmm. looking for actors, but they gave the email addresses for the company. So I figured, what the hell? It was February. I'm like, you know what, dear Mr. Stites, I know you don't know me, la la la, but this is my experience. I know the show like the back of my hand. If you haven't hired someone yet, I would love to be considered, blah, blah, blah. You know, just the basic format. I did give my background with the show for sure, though. Right. Hit send, never got a reply. Not even a, not even a, who do you think you are? How dare you send me this letter? We're not looking for musicians. The ad said actor, you know, la, la. I got nothing. Not even that. Right. And, uh, seriously, fast forward to like eight months later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Out of nowhere, I get this email that says, um, I won't go into the details exactly what happened. So they hired someone that didn't work out, I guess, or wasn't going to work out. I think they were going to try to do the tour carrying only one percussionist, but they were using both books. Mm-hmm. Now, I've seen tours, like the tour that just came out, it was redu- reduced down to one book specifically. Right. This not like that. They were going to pick up a percussionist in every city. Mm. I don't know if you know that show well, but that's... Yeah an easy ask okay right (laughs) so um anyway so he goes listen uh they were gonna have us pick up in every city but and oh and the other thing is you know how when you when they reply you can see your email below it right this was responding to the email i sent in february so somewhere in kevin stite's music you know book or whatever he kept this email so i mean that's a good story right there the fact that you never know you just never know and uh, he said, so anyway, it didn't work out. If you'd like to play, uh, we, so we need a percussion, a drum one book. It's yours if you want it. Hmm. I was like, uh, uh, okay, but I know the show really well. And that's not the drum set book. That is the other book with the all the other mallet stuff, the timpani. So hmm. I immediately called some colleagues of mine, like, all right, how hard is this? You know, because like I said, even the tour I did, it was a, con- a combined book. Right. 
And, uh, and they were like, yeah, it's a pretty killer. I also have some connections with other companies. So I was able to, through MTI, to get a copy of the book within a day. Hmm. And oh my gosh, I started looking at it and I was like, holy cow, this is crazy. And this is one of those stories where I was like, I'm an idiot for not learning mallets earlier in life and studying harder and la la la. I mean, Kevin Seitz, finally, you finally get that call that you've been waiting for your whole life. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're going to have to say, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I immediately call, you know, I, I email him and I said, you know, Mr. Seitz, look, I'm willing to put this time in. I'm going to do this. Uh, but I just want to be upfront <laughs> that I'm more of a drum set player and not the mallet player. I, I mean, I do play mallets, but I'm, you know, I... The, I'm going to have to woodshed this and I'm willing to put the time in. But, oh, the thing was they hired me so late. I literally had like two weeks to put this together. Right. So I was like, okay. And he literally writes back the next day. This is where your listeners are going to hate me for life. He goes, well, I don't know what the problem is here, really. He's like, why don't I just have the other guy? The other guy's actually more of a mallet player. And he just wanted to just, you know, stretch his arms on the drum set. So I told him he could play that book. He's like, but this sounds like it makes more sense for, I'll just give him that book and you play the drum set book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, and to give a shout out to Eric Borgie, for those of you who know him, he's the, one of the best percussionists I've ever gotten to work with. He was on the Les Mis tour for all those years. Um, he was so gracious and he he did say, he's like, well, when Kevin says, this is what you're doing, you just do it. Right. (laughs) And, uh, but he, without, cause he could have said, look, no, you told me I could play the drum set book on this tour. So, you know, he just graciously stepped down and, and, or I should say stepped aside to the other book. And that was one of the better, best experiences I've had playing with another percussionist on the road. Right. Well, that's an important lesson because, um, you could have, uh, you could have had a bit of an ego about this and you could, and, and you could have just said, I'm not going to admit my shortcomings in this area. And, and I'll just hope they don't notice or anything like that. And by making that call, you, you, you gave yourself a much better situation. Yeah. No, never do that. Right. Never put yourself in that position to get fired. I guess right. basically you have, you know, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I guess if you're really desperate for the work or something, you might try to roll the dice, but you're reputation is much more worth more in my opinion. Right. And especially when someone like Kevin calls, you know, mm-hmm. it, I guess it depends on the level of the situation, you know, who's calling, but still you don't want to go into, it's not fair to the, everyone, the performers, the other musicians, things like that, especially as a drummer. I mean, you're holding everything together. So it's really important. Right. When did you start doing theater? Is that something you've always done? No. I mean, I feel like I have a funny first story for everything. I, (laughs) my sister did some theater when I was like in seventh grade and I went to see her show and didn't really know anything about it. Um, How I started theater, this is hilarious actually. So when I was a freshman in high school, I joined stage crew and they were doing a straight play called Don't Drink the Water, Woody Allen. Great, great play. Being the freshman, they didn't trust me to do anything except open the curtain. Well, it's a play. So it's literally top of the show, open the curtain, intermission, close it, open it, close it. Right. right. The next year, I was always I was always a singer and I was in high school choir. And he said, the music said, I'm trying to talk the advisors into doing a musical this year. And so mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, it's Greece, right? You know, I mean, everyone does Greece, you know. And later on, he goes, we're going to do My Fair Lady. And I was like, My Fair what? I was like, I never even heard of it. I was like, this sounds stupid. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not doing the show this year. You know, like I thought I was. And uh, about a week later, the acting troupe said, we're having an informal meeting. We're going to watch the movie, My Fair Lady, and we're going to have free pizza. Well, hello, free pizza. I was like, I'm there. <laughs> so I went and oh my gosh, as soon as Stanley Holloway made his entrance in that movie, I was like, I have to play that role. And it was Alfred P. Doolittle, the father. And I was like, I have to play that part and audition got it that's you know they always say you know when you got bit that that curtain call the first night of opening night is when I got bit that was nothing I'd ever experienced in my life because I really wasn't a popular kid in school I wasn't a popular student I wasn't the I did play sports but I wasn't like the greatest athlete you know no one ever cheered for me before and I was like holy cow these people are like cheering for me and it was great and that's when I got bit and like I said, that's when I, that parlayed into a couple other roles in Summerstock and stuff like that. And that's, 
started watching the drummer and then I just fell in love with all aspects and that's when I wanted to start drumming. Yeah. Right. I was just switching gears a little bit. Uh, I always like it when I can connect two episodes together. So back on episode 21, I I talked to uh, Wayne Leachford of um, Durham about booking music for a national tour. He's, he's local to that area and he tends to play on all the tours that come through. And, um, it was, I think it was about, about the time that episode came out that you sent me a message and say, hey, I was on one of those tours. So uh, what shows have you done? And, and just tell us about coming to Durham. I thought it would be interesting to hear the opposite. Of, what's the word? The opposite perspective. Right. Uh, someone that actually comes into town as a touring musician mm-hmm. who meets Wayne and all these other people, uh, the contractor and stuff like that. And uh, the one thing I, I just, it made me laugh when he said this. Sometimes I hear real horror stories from the touring musicians about other cities, you know, and I'm always wondering, are they telling the next city stories about us? Yes, we do talk about you when we move on to the next city. Nice. <laughs> it's good. Don't don't worry about, you know, like we're talking badly, but yeah, there's some horror stories where, yeah, you're going to get mentioned in the next. And that's another one of those, what we already talked about, about, and look, you know, the contractors always say something like, this was the best guy we had or whatever, or our, or our normal first call wasn't available or whatever. And, and it's just so funny to hear those stories. And I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but there's so many different variations on this. When you're playing like the A cities, they call them, mm-hmm. Boston, LA, Chicago, whatever. And it's funny because sometimes you'll end up with a worse orchestra because there's so much work there. Mm-hmm. Those guys want the long-term work. And it can it can play both sides of this. Uh, this happened when I was on High School Musical. Wicked was sitting down in Chicago at the time. Mm-hmm. And we got so lucky because those guys had been playing that book for a year. A lot of those players wanted to do something different. Mm. So they decided to sub out Wicked and come to us and play our show, which was so much fun. But then there's other years where if there's a uh, one of my other main shows, I've just well, I didn't. This is the first year in 10 years I wasn't out. And this was the last time I was in Durham, which was last year on White Christmas, Irving mm-hmm. Berlin's White Christmas. That's my, been my main show for 10 years. And um, the one thing that happened was most times in these bigger cities, they'll have like a nutcracker. And that usually runs for like three weeks to a month. Well, if you're only sitting down there for a week, the, the musicians want the work. They'd rather do the month sit down than the week sit down. And so you end up with like fourth and fifth call sometimes. Right. And it can be a challenge. It really can. So it can work both ways. It, it really doesn't matter. But that's the one that I mostly came through Durham with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think some other shows I came through there. It's been Bombay dreams. I was through there with, but that was a different theater because right. uh, this is that the one in Durham's a new theater. That's where you are, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm in North Carolina, but yeah, Durham is, is, is one of the two big ones you have. Dur- uh, if you're coming to North Carolina, you're either going to Durham, which is uh, called DPAC, uh, Durham performing arts center, or you're in Charlotte and you're going to Bloomingthal. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And Raleigh, well, Raleigh's there too, right? Raleigh's yeah, big... R- Raleigh and Durham are basically cousin cities. They're they're right next to each other. So, but uh, so pe- people will say Raleigh, but it but it's actually it's DPAC. It's it's Durham Performing Arts Center that you come to. I was so surprised how small it was. Now I don't know. I've been one of those situations where they used some of it to put seats on it. Right. Sell it. If that makes sense. We were down in the pit underneath the audience, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the musicians were actually in the pit. And it was really odd. It, that was that was more challenging. Now it doesn't because you know nowadays we we wear cans anyway, so it's not that big of a deal. But um, with picking up, it's I don't know how to explain it. It's just a real. Tr- it's the worst part of the job, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think it was Frank Wildhorn who started the whole ghosting musicians because you know, and he just his comment was, "I'm tired of going into these various cities across the country and hearing my music played badly." And I've saw some really comments on now that Facebook's such such a big deal, like when a tour opens in a certain city. And then I pull them aside in DM and I, I'm like, do you know what goes on? Mm-hmm. And what do you mean? And I'm like, well, first of all, yeah, they, they don't know. The audiences don't realize most times that these musicians don't travel with the show like the actors do. You know, and it's it's not an easy thing. The, t- the Tuesdays are hell. You know, we get there at 10 a.m. They literally have three or four hours of rehearsal 
they have a couple hours off, we do a sound check and then they open. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot to ask. And it, it gets to the point where by Friday, you're starting to gel, especially with the, if you're not carrying a bass player, that's always, you know, obviously for me, it's, I'm more I'm most worried about the bass player and the percussionist because mm -hmm. the at least on the way christmas tour maestro always kind of just left it to me to like kind of deal with the percussion i mean obviously if there's something major he would take care of it but as far as like coaching them along if they have questions i'll just do that you know the the traveling musicians kind of do that you know right. we're, we're kind of trying to just be helpful to if he's working with the brass i'll if there's something with the percussion i'll take him aside and say hey uh this is how this goes or whatever and um it's just it is it's really tricky because then you just move on and you start over and every week. It's different. And it, it is very different every week because the pit setup's different. Uh, the, the, the musicians are different, obviously. And that's, that's the tricky part about touring, especially as a traveling guy is to have the gumption to be a leader, but yet you also have to be part of the band, if that makes sense. Right. It's really tricky sometimes. And I can tell you, I have learned so much and grown so much in the 25 years the difference from when my first tour picking up, I was probably about 24, 25 years old, maybe something like that. And how I am now are so different. Right. Out of that actually, because I probably was not the best. Yeah. That's all I mean. I, without calling myself completely out, but yeah, I was probably a jerk. I really right. was. I probably was. I was like, how can you not know this part, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes like I'll be on Facebook and, you know, you have that memory section shows like what you posted on this yeah. day. Sometimes I'll see things I posted 10 years ago and I don't even recognize that person. It's like, I'm so glad I've grown past that, you know, and that was when I was in my 30s when I posted that. Be honest, because of 10 years of the last month, especially 10 years of touring with White Christmas with 10 different casts. And, you know, you see all these Oh, it killed me not to be on tour this year with White Christmas. It really did. And we were going to play Seattle and we were going to play all these great cities this year. I was looking so forward to. Right. And, you know, unfortunately it didn't happen. So we'll see. Um, I, I would love to be in a pit for White Christmas. I, I've I've done that with a community theater as a music director, but, you know, it was a small music a community theater. And, you know, we, we determined there, there was no way to reduce that for a live band and have it sound good. So it, it's a tracks show at that theater. <laughs> you know, it's the only way that, that, that they could put it on in that venue. And, and it's, the tracks are really good. They, 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 they were really well produced, but I was just thinking that that would be something to have a large venue and be able to do that show live. It there's nothing like it. And this touring company that has been producing it now, they've made some cuts. We started when we had 19. Mm -hmm. I mean, for touring to have 19 in the pit, that's amazing. I think we're down to like 16 or something like that. It, It's it's just one of my favorite shows ever. And I always, I'm like, where do I sign for next year? I mean, if I'm busy, obviously, and doing something else, that might be different. But, oh my gosh, I look so forward to that every year. That score is just so great. Yeah. And I know the show overall is not a total fan favorite out there because it is really cheesy but you know during the holidays it's it's fun and the oh, score but the, the score. dancing the dancing is so great sure yeah <laughs> that's as a drummer i think i speak for probably everyone i mean the tap shows are what i love to do the most i mean 42nd street any of the tap shows but white christmas especially has been become like my all-time favorite nice yeah uh, okay, well, I, I know there's so many stories we could go with all the tours and things you've done, but I, I'm I'm very fascinated um, looking at your resume of the tours you've done. The Japan tour for Rent really sticks out at me. T tell me what that was like. Well, that was another one that was just a little scary at the time because I wasn't sure much about it. I'd known the, I'd known the show. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to go out to the... New, the national tour in America and, you know, watch the book and stuff like that. Kevin Farrell called me and he was the one that said, Hey, I got called to do this show and I would love to have you. What, what he, first he said, he goes, what do you think about that? And I went, well, now do you know Kevin Farrell by any chance? The name rings a bell, but I don't know him. He used to work at Radio City. He big Broadway conductor. He did uh, the Evita tour for years, but he's known for his Rodgers and Hammerstein. That's when I first met him was on the King and I tour. Brilliant conductor. And he uh, said, rent. And I went, really? And he goes, yeah, why? What, what's the hesitation? And I said, well, Kevin, I go, I just don't really see you doing rent, you know? <laughs> and 
<laughs> you know, because he wanted me to be honest. And so he's like, he goes, well, he goes, I would love to have you do it. He goes, and I would only do it if you did it. He's like, but I know you're not going to want to do it because it only pays uh, blah, blah, blah. I think it paid like $700 a week. Mm-hmm. And I said, I go, well, easy killer, easy. You know, mm-hmm. I said, we're, t- we're talking, I've never been to Japan. I was like, so I said, I assume they're covering. He goes, oh yeah, everything else is covered. Flights, hotels, everything's covered. He goes, but I know that's not a lot of money. I said, well, so I thought about it and I was at a place where I could go away to Japan for, it was like two months. And I said, let's do it, you know? And oh my gosh, I will say that show specifically. When I saw it the first, first of all, let me go back to when the first time I heard the album. I was so lost. I just didn't get it. I'm mm-hmm. like, I do not, this is like the new thing. It was 1996. I'm on the tour bus for Annie, get your gun. Me and my friend, we listened to it. We put the splitter in and we're looking at each other. Like, what is this? Like, we didn't, we didn't get it at all. Fast forward to about four years later, I have friends on the tour. This is well before the Japan tour, but I wanted to go see it. Mm-hmm. I, I sat in the audience and I think I sat at like the soundboard or the lightboard. I, I still, I, I just didn't get it. I'm like, now this is me sounding like I'm old as hell. And I'm less like, I just don't get it. And then I sat on stage with the band. I just didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, I just didn't get it. Like, I don't understand what the infatuation with the show was. Now, of course, the, the drum books kick butt. You know, it's like, that's a great rock and roll, you know, hardcore right. show. I just didn't get it. Well, let me tell you something. Once you're involved with that show, mm-hmm. and part of it, I think, was meeting Jonathan's father, who came to wish us well before we left, as he does with all the shows, well, that he used to anyway. And um, once you're involved in it, and you really dig deep down into that score, and you hear those lyrics every night, it's like, it was life-changing for me. It really was. Mm-hmm. And the main thing for me was the reaction that we got over there mm. was like nothing I'd ever encountered in my life. And even High School Musical, which was huge. I mean, we had 16-year-olds at the stage door, you know, eight, you know, 10-year-olds like screaming for us when we come out the stage door. Right. This was nothing like I'd ever experienced in my life. That those crowds over there and that show specifically hit so home with I'd never felt I felt like I was a beetle. I really did. Right. Like we would get onto the bus and we'd have like those smaller buses Mm because it was such a small cast in the band. And they would literally be pushing on the bus, like Mm. rock us until they would get off. We would all get off and sign autographs. And I'm handing out drumsticks. And like, it was crazy, (laughs) the the reception we got. And for that show specifically, closing night in in, uh, Tokyo, we're only doing a matinee because they have to load out and we're going to, I think we were going to Osaka or wherever. No one would leave. Mm -hmm. The audience would not leave. They just kept applauding and they would ask for encore. They wouldn't let the cast go back out. Now the band plays the exit music and we got a little carried away on that. Our two guitar players, they would actually leave the, I don't know if you know how that is with the band on stage. They would leave and they turned it into like what I thought it was like a kiss concert where they would go down to the edge of the stage and like play for the fan. And they were like so into it. Like I said, I just never felt like more like a beetle in my life. They, they were going crazy. Well, so we finished the exit music and we leave the stage and we're just standing off stage and all of a sudden we hear the audience start singing the songs. Mm-hmm. And I say, I have video of this. I'll never, this is one of the coolest experiences of my life. Harmonies, so perfect. And they're singing these songs. And like, it was like being in a stadium and the, just like I said, the reception was just so amazing. Finally, the cast, we start like peeking out. Like we're like trying to take video of this because this is like nothing we've ever experienced in America. And uh, it was literally another 20 minutes to a half hour. The crew couldn't even start striking because the audience just wouldn't leave. And it was just one of the coolest moments in my life, you know, being on a tour of that kind of thing. The experience of Japan, uh, that's another story. Right. (laughs) Well, because me personally, I like to, I like to figure things out on my own. Does that make sense? I don't like, I don't want to be a burden. And when we got over there, they, the company we had, they hired one translator for the entire company. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the actors were running right, you know, and it's like, oh, anyway, that's a whole other story about <laughs> actors. But they were all like dominating. We'll just put it that way. And I was just like, you know what? I'm an adult. I can figure this out. Well, man, that first night I walked around probably for like two hours just trying to find an ATM that mm. I could my my card at. And it got really frustrating. And I'd go into like a, what they're, they call a 7-Eleven and trying to get, and they don't speak English. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I, I was fine. I'm like, that's okay. I shouldn't expect them to, you know, I should have done more work on my own, be, be able to kind of have key phrases down. And I didn't, I didn't do any of that. And uh, so it was a little scary at first. Once I got settled in, it was fantastic. Right. Now, did you do like multiple cities in Japan? Yeah, we did. I want to say it was four cities. Uh, Cause Tokyo was the main one though. We were there for almost a month in Tokyo mm-hmm. between, cause that's where we teched and opened. And um, yeah, I, I know Osaka was on there and I want to say there were two other cities and they weren't that far apart. They were, right. you know, train. We took the bullet train, which was kind of cool. Nice. I'd never been out of the country, believe it or not. I mean, I'd been to Canada, mm-hmm. but that was it. And, um, but yeah, it was the flight over. It was just the whole experience was really, really great. Oh, it really sounds, sounds amazing. <laughs> that show. Oh, yeah. and like I said, we were like rock stars. They, that you don't get that kind of reception in America. You just didn't. No. I mean, some like Hamilton now, you probably feel like that and stuff like that. And I'm sure there's been others and maybe rent when it first opened, I, you know, obviously I wasn't involved, so I don't know, oh, yeah. but yeah yeah i've actually been at shows you know where the where it's a proper pit you know or you know like something uh you know an an older show where you know the the actors do their curtain call and everyone's like woo, and they they, and then they 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 go to the booth and it's like woo. then they they go to the pit you hear like four people clapping It's like yeah. uh, it is a musical. It would not be great. <laughs> yeah, don't even get me started on that. It's like the non-union tours. You know, it's like these actors that they, they have these like contracts. You know, they're in their contracts. Blah blah. It always cracked me up where the importance of who's most important on the tour, and that's really what it was about. I mean, don't get me st- the leads get their own bus seats, things like that. Right. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? If the drummer goes down, we ain't got a show. You know, right. it's like. And, you know, it's like, how can, if the actor gets sick, you put your understudy on. Mm-hmm. We don't got any understudies and it's a freaking musical. Come on. You know, right. it's like, <laughs> anyway. Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, we could probably break this up into a couple of episodes if we had to, but it, I may have, I may have to have you back on at some point, just, um, at some point, I'd, I'd, I want to have a whole episode about a pit rat. Pit ratting was very, very interesting. It really was. Because right. your you're only perk, you didn't get paid more. Your only perk was that you got to ride with the crew because they have the sleeper buses. Mm. So nice. That was the perk. And I like that. I prefer, although I have to say, part of the beginning, the, the difference in union touring and, and non-union touring, the one worst part mm. was you you didn't get to see America anymore. That was the best part about the non-union tours was you were, you were on a bus all day and you travel right to the venue and then you get out, do sound check and da da. But during the day when you're getting there, especially when you're like in Utah and Montana and all these Wyoming to see the sights, it's just breathtaking. And when you're on these union tours and you're flying from city, you miss all that. You don't right. get to see experience all that so that was and when you're pit riding you're sleeping on the bus because you're traveling through the night you right. wake up you're at the next venue and you start loading in at 6 a.m mm. so it's it's tough it is i mean now luckily uh i had a nickname on the anti-tour it was called hour and a half gig guy they called me because i was pretty quick at it and because i kind of knew what i was doing and blah, blah, blah. and uh so i'm usually done by like 10 30 11 so then i could go back to the bus and take a nap or whatever relax right. until sound check it where those crew guys they work their butts off i mean they are the most i I don't want to call them unappreciated because i do think they are appreciated but let me tell you though especially on those non-union tours for them to move the show like they do it just blows my mind the fact that you see these sets and all these and just the sound equipment alone and the lights and everything for them to move it with one-nighters i mean that's just it's it's incredible it really is and to watch be able to watch it as the pit rat to see how it goes up and comes down in hours and then to put it on a truck, drive five hours through the night and wake up and do it again for like five or six days in a row. Sometimes we'd have like five one nighters in a row and it's just, it blows my mind right. how they get through it. But right. Yeah. Uh, again, so much, so much we could talk about, uh, but I definitely don't want to finish without giving you a chance to just tell us about your new podcast network. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of a fake thing if i'm being honest okay so it, i mean it's not it's real but i mean i decided to because i've had 
five or six. So I'm out of work, obviously. Okay. Right. So my fiance was like, okay, you need a freaking hobby because <laughs> you're driving me crazy. Okay. Well, and she knew I had this idea. I, a buddy of mine that was on the Jekyll and Hyde tour, we met 20 years ago, uh, 21 years ago now, uh, who's going to be the best man in my wedding. And we just, to pass time on the bus, we would make these football picks, NFL football picks. Mm-hmm. And nothing really major. I mean, I think we bet like a quarter a game or something. And it would always turn out where one of us would end up with like, you know, 10 wins, the other one. So we'd owe each other like 50 cents or something. It was stupid. It was stupid. But anyway, so along the years, this evolved and it just kept us closer and we would make these picks. And so I decided to develop this football podcast kind of thing, you know, where we just make picks and we just kind of shoot the, you know, shoot the, uh, but I've had like four or five other ideas for podcasts. And this is going to be hilarious. I, Cause like I said, I listened to so many podcasts. The one thing I didn't want to have to do was create a separate web page or a separate email address or a separate Facebook page for every podcast. Right. Because of course I'm thinking, Oh, I'm going to have like four or five of these at the same time. Right. Well, <laughs> you're laughing at me right now. And it's, it's, <laughs> sir uh because i have two now and i do not have a free second to myself it's right unstop all day all night getting guests and the other one i was i think pretty smart what i wanted i started the one the football one and it was doing fine i mean it's not getting a ton of listeners we hardly promote it it's just more for fun but i did it to learn the craft because right. i had another idea for a one that i wanted to be really good and I felt I'll get all the kinks out with this one and then I'll be ready for it. Well, let me tell you, it just took off. And how I did that was I found a group, a specific group that, so there was already a big clump of people that would be interested in the topic that I was going to do. Does that right. make sense? Right. Um, and it's funny because someone, it's a podcast about a podcast and that's kind of what it is. Uh, are you a sports fan at all? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. uh, uh, do you know Tony Kornheiser by any chance? Uh, I guess I don't. <laughs> he, well, it's okay. He does. He does PTI. It's a show on ESPN, uh, and it's, it airs every day on ESPN. He has his own radio show. Okay. And it's got a huge following. I think he gets like two hundred thousand downloads every day right. for every show he does. Okay. Yeah. Dream. Dream. How, how about that one? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a little. That's a little ahead of this show. <laughs> Well, I, I'd love to talk numbers with you, and I will if you want, but it, it's interesting because my other, you know, the football one gets nobody. But right. anyway, so you, you want people to hear your stuff, right? So you you try to find a way. Mm-hmm. So I came up, so everyone that listens to his show, okay, they're called Littles. Mm-hmm. Now, that's because they're on the show, Bigs, and we're the Littles, mm-hmm. okay? Well, let me tell you, it is this community. There's four different Facebook pages. The one alone has over 4,000 people on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I came up with this idea to create this podcast for the loyal littles. Mm. We're called loyal littles. And basically what I do is it's such a community. It's hard to explain, but it's like a family. It really is. And I know that sounds insane. Cause we just know each other on Facebook groups and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But we've been posting in these groups and talking about his show for so many years that you know, the, you feel like, you know, these people. So anyway, I decided to come up with a, it's called the Loyal Littles podcast. And what I do is I actually interview the Loyal Littles Mm -hmm. instead of the, you know, they do like the big sports writers and all the guests. My guests are Loyal Littles who listen to his show. Mm -hmm. So it already has like a following, you know, in itself. Now it's not nearly what he gets, obviously, but, um, and it's just a, it's just a a fun time. So we have like three segments where we just talk about, anything uh me and my host we talk about we don't usually do politics or anything like that but we'll talk about sports we'll talk about movies tv shows things like that then we'll interview a guest and then we close out the show with more just garbage talk whatever and um it's just been so much fun and i have to say when i started the first podcast the editing is what i kind of loved because Mm -hmm. it was kind of me that was the artistic side that i could come out but anyway, to answer your question, the two podcasts are the Loyal Littles podcast. If you are a Tony Kornheiser fan, it's for you. If you don't, if you're a Tony Kornheiser fan, you probably know what the Loyal Littles are. The other one is called the Upset Special Podcast. 
that's a name we just came up with because some of the football picks we make are upset specials. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's obviously ending in a few weeks because the Super Bowl's upon us. And uh, yeah, so hopefully my, my schedule will free up a little bit more and hopefully I'll get back to work. And <laughs> so right. now, thing, once I get back to work, that's hopefully going to be. Okay. I'm not sure when this episode will come out re relative to the Super Bowl, uh, but we're one round down. So as of uh, January 13th, what, what's your Super Bowl pick? Uh, you know, my uncle Gus taught me a very valuable lesson in life. Always bet with your pocket and not your heart. Right. And that's, really tricky for me because I am a diehard New Orleans Saints fan. Mm -hmm. And, but I'd be crazy to think that, do they have a shot? Of course. And it's, that's the beauty part about NFL. It's one game, anything can happen. And, um, but I, I just think Rogers right now looks so good with green Bay. And I just think Mahomes. that that's my, it's one of those, I, I want to see Buffalo sneak in there in the AFC and they look so good right now, but I'd be as a betting person, you'd be stupid right now to not think Mahomes is going to get back there. And uh, if it was, if it was Mahomes and Rogers, that's, that's how far is Tom Brady and the Bucks going to go? They, you mean, uh, that's <laughs> how we were, them. I'm scared to death. I got to be honest. We play them this week. Mm -hmm. And as Tony Kornheiser says, and right. I do agree with this, it's really hard to beat the same team three times in a season. Right. And division now, and we beat them both times and we beat them good. Right. And that's why I'm scared. So well, I, I say if he gets past this, I don't think he goes into Green Bay. And that's, of course, you know, Green Bay's got to got to win this week, but totally copping out on it. But you, you caught me off guard with that question because I haven't really done, you know, you, you kind of take it week by week, you know, right. to ask a Super Bowl winner. Uh, I guess if I had to, I would say Kansas City because you just how Mahomes is just out of this. It's like watching a video game, watching right. him play sometimes. It really is. You know, circling back to the podcast thing real quickly, it's kind of funny because it's like my life. And right. because I tell people now that I'm doing a podcast, they're like, oh, well, what what kind of theater podcast is it? <laughs> oh, what kind of drumming podcast is it? That would be interesting, you know? And I'm like, no, it's not anything to do with that because I like to branch out and just make it right. fun and something different. You know, I don't want to talk about my job on a podcast. I would rather right. talk about other things. And well, you know, yeah, I mean, I've told many people um, I wanted to do a podcast, and I was certain I would do something on film music because um, uh, uh, you know I'm I'm actually I'm a composer. I write music, and I've I've added four film scores in this past year, and um, but. Go type in film music podcast and see how many pop up. But go type up pit musician and see how few pop up. And I was like, uh, you know, I, I wanted to go where there was a need. Yeah. Where can people follow you or your podcast or anything else you want to share? <laughs> well, the podcast, like, I, I think, I don't know if you already have it in there, but the Loyal Littles podcast is our main podcast. If you're a Tony Kornheiser fan, mm -hmm. you should probably already know about it, but it's a, just a fun time and some great interviews. That, the base, I'm on Twitter, and the funny part is I'm not really on Twitter because right. I have a Twitter handle, and I had to change it about five years ago, because on the White Christmas tour, the, sometimes they'll do that takeover thing. Mm -hmm. Like the last someone in the cast or music to take over the, the the page for the day. My handle was pretty, was kind of questionable. So they, <laughs> so anyway, my new, my new Twitter handle is IBWC drummer. That's my handle. IBWC drummer. It stands for Irving Berlin's White Christmas drummer. I feel like after 10 years of being the drummer on the tour, I felt like I could own that or have it and be okay with it. Uh, my email address is lbcrocco at aol.com. And, you know, just Facebook, Louis B. Crocco, the best places to find me if you have any questions or want to get in touch with me. Okay, very good. Well, uh, again, thank you for taking the time. I know I know you're, you're traveling right now. Thank you for, uh, for just sharing all these stories. Oh, no problem. This has been a pleasure. And I've been looking forward to this for months. I think yes. I reached out to you, you know, many months ago, but I'm so glad that you weren't able to get to me till now, because it means you're having all these great interviews. And it's just really fun to hear all the different aspects of different from different instruments to different people and just how they think about the pit in general. It's really a lot of fun. And that wraps up episode number 36.
on next Friday, February 19th, I'll be releasing episode number 37. And that conversation is one of the few that goes outside of the box of what we normally do. Uh, We won't be talking much about the pit itself. I'm going to be talking to somebody who is an executive director of a symphony orchestra. And um, so, you know, what's the connection of this podcast? Um, Well, one of them is that she did grow up in the theater. She has a deep appreciation for the theater, and we talk about that. Uh, And some of those experiences have influenced how she has handled her job in an orchestra, especially during a pandemic, and uh, some of the some of the unique programs that were inspired by some immersion theater shows that she saw in New York. That's going to be next Friday here on Life in the Pit. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Perolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can reach out, leave a message, or feedback, and find out more at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and share with your friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you.